Hello and welcome to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Harditz. Happy Tuesday. We got some cool stuff to talk about, as always, on this edition of the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm joined by none other than PFF's own Dwayne The Rock McFarlane. Dwayne, we've made it past the Pro Bowl week. There's one more football game separating us between now and the USFL season. How are you dealing with it? I'm good. I, I didn't pay a ton of attention um, to Twitter over Pro Bowl weekend. But apparently, I, I guess there's a lot of people bitching about it. Um, see, I, I did what you should do if you don't like the Pro Bowl. You just don't watch. And then and you also don't read any tweets about it. Like, you just you just move on. I did see your tweet of the old Odell Beckham dance. I forgot about that. That was, that was one of the most awesome things ever next to the mascot. That was, that was fun. <laughs> Everyone's saying, oh, look at OBJ, like, dancing away from his teammates. It's the Pro Bowl. That clip right there was better than anything I've seen on field from that, you know, tragedy of a game over the past five years i haven't i haven't watched the pro bowl i think 10 years Dwayne. i spent this weekend sleeping in i bought nintendo switch so i was all over that playing uh zelda ocarani ocarina of time or whatever and yeah very light football weekend the hardest household uh for once my friend so on this edition of the podcast we basically want to go through three categories not going to be all that related but Dwayne and i are doing a bunch of cool stuff all throughout the week we want to take the time to point out some things that hey maybe don't need 60 90 minutes of attention but 15 20 here you could imagine so Dwayne, let's kick things off with a look and preview of the tight end free agency landscape i'm going to share my screen here both of us know some articles that you can all find on pff.com in recent weeks about the tight end landscape Dwayne and i kind of had a different approach of going about it so basically i looked at the different situations Dwayne looked more at the different players and by god what are the chances we're on the same podcast to marry these two principles so starting things off when we went over the wide receiver stuff on this podcast a week or two ago kind of explained it but the idea of available targets is going to be what I, I think kind of drives a lot of this so i went through looked at all the potential free agents not all of whom are going to be leaving their team but just as it stands right now unrestricted exclusive right whatever it is took away those targets and looked at which teams have the most room for available opportunity they are as you can see on this screen the cardinals with 446 then the buccaneers packers chargers falcons dolphins cowboys and titans there are some other teams not that far off the jets the freaking commanders like we gotta call them that now texans bears and chiefs and then we got some other depth charts like the saints patriots lions jaguars where it's like okay don't have that many available targets but there's you know enough of a lack of depth uh, around there to imagine someone coming in and taking over uh Dwayne the first thing before we get into these exact fits though is I just want to point out how damn atrocious past high price free agent additions have been at the tight end position it's usually not good if you're changing teams that means your original team didn't like you enough to really pay up what they needed to so it makes sense that this you know group of players isn't great but my god man highest price free agency deal since 2016 Jonu Smith, Austin Hooper, Hunter Henry, Kobe Fleener, Trey Burton, Jimmy Graham, Chessie James, Martellus Bennett, Ladarius Green, Tyler Croft, and if your ears are not bleeding yet, Rhett Ellison, Deion Samson, Jimmy Graham, twice in the same list. Got it, love that. Dwayne, you know, with a lot of these uh, positions, not every player has a price point, so we're not fading anyone just to fade them. But in general, man, I think if we just looked at free agents as a whole over the past five years, particularly at tight end, stay away from them if it's you know at all possible. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it does depend on landing spot. Like, for example, John U. Smith and Hunter Henry are two of the biggest names on here, and they landed on the same damn team. 
right? Austin Hooper goes to a team where he lands there with David Njoku, who they had spent a first-round pick on. Now Stefanski was coming in, so he was not the guy that had drafted Njoku. And then they draft another guy, you know, in Harrison Bryant. So it's just, I think there are some different nuances that, so I don't know that I would just have a strict rule just to avoid them, but I think you definitely need to pay attention to where do they land and is there a very, is it very likely that they're going to be rotating and sharing time? Because that's just not something that we want to deal with at the fantasy. It really at any position, if we can avoid it, but like we know it's something we're going to deal with at running back, but when you only have to have 12 in a 12 team league or 10, you know, in a 10 team league, it's a onesie position. You know, you're really just trying to get one of the guys that, that isn't in, you know, one of those splits. Otherwise, I mean, you're just basically betting on a touchdown every week. So I do think that it makes a little bit of a difference depending on where some of these guys land. With that in mind, top five landing spots, in my humble opinion, mostly based on those available targets, but also got the quarterback in the depth chart. Cardinals, Chargers, Giants, Seahawks, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Let's start off with the Cardinals here real quick because, Dwayne, they are using, they are losing not only Zach Ertz, but also Max Williams, who was, of course, their starting tight end in the first five games of the year before he suffered a torn ACL. Zach Ertz, upon joining the Cardinals, was the tight end four overall the rest of the way. I mean, I realize a lot of this did come with DeAndre Hopkins out of the picture, and we had a split there where Kyler Murray was out of the picture as well. But, Dwayne, like before, before this podcast, I was doing some handy dandy work on, um, you know, excelling all this shit. And anyway, with, uh, you know, looking at age and stuff like that. And as we can see, uh, you know, as we can see here on this handy dandy chart, like tight ends, even age 30 plus, man, we're still seeing plenty of, you oh, know, yeah, higher end contributors, right, relative to running back wide receivers. So if Ertz comes back to Arizona, man, and they don't make this huge kind of uh, splash upgrade at wide receiver two or, you know, receiving running back or something, I think Zach Ertz could be looking at, you know, a rather inexplicable kind of second half career renaissance. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, and when you look at Ertz, I mean, he'll be going into his age 31 season. So, like, he's kind of a baby compared to – and we talked about this even on a few of these tight ends on the last podcast. Like, you got these guys at age 36, 37, you know, that are still having these seasons. So, Ertz is still relatively young. We know how he wins. He's not, like, trying to burn people on wheel routes or seams. Like, he can work those things. But, really, his game is understanding how zone concepts run, which, oh, by the way, the NFL runs zone on almost 70% of their plays. So, mostly what tight ends face is going to be zones. You're against linebackers. You're against safeties. Not necessarily the best cover guys anyway. And a lot of it is just based on being able to understand, uh, you know, what's happening in front of you. Like looking at Ertz, looking at Gronkowski, looking at even Jason Witten in his latter years, Antonio Gates, Tony Gonzalez, all as they were kind of fading into the sunset, if you will, but still being productive in fantasy. Like they weren't elite athletes anymore, but we saw them continue to be able to be um, an impact on their team. And I think a lot of it comes down to the quarterback trust them. They know they're going to get a good matchup. And it's, you know, a lot of these are shorter targets, right? They're in the five to 10 yard range. So you know you get a high catch rate. You can throw into tighter windows, all those sorts of things. And so I think that when you look at Ertz, like he really fits that profile to me. I think Gronk does, does too. We don't know for sure what Gronk's going to do. Like, you know, it sounds like he may be leaning towards retirement. But if he chose to come back and play, I totally think Gronk can play um, even with a different quarterback. Obviously, that would be different not having, you know, Brady. It would impact him some. But I think that he's a good enough player, still young enough that he has some years left. Great point on the types of routes. I know we're getting into that more here uh, in our second segment on this episode. And it's like, probably shouldn't be criticizing Ertz and these tight ends for not being able to run certain types of routes that, let's face it, tight ends and these types of players aren't running all that often anyway. So always remember relative to what we're dealing with here. All right, 
After the Cardinals, I do think the Los Angeles Chargers could be fantastic. I don't need to tell any of you guys about what Justin Herbert brings to the table. But then you look at this offense. Jared Cook, 35 years old. He's an unrestricted free agent regardless. I wouldn't think he played well enough last year to really earn the benefit of the doubt coming back. Either way, we need to see what happens there. Also, Steven Anderson and even Donald Parham is an exclusive rights-free agent. Now, the exclusive rights-free agent, it's very easy for them to bring these guys back. All they have to do is extend the qualifying offer, which is a one-year league minimum contract, and that player will not be allowed to negotiate with another team. Really weird, Dwayne, just like reading that aloud. Like, doesn't really sound fair um, exactly to the <laughs> no. player, but that's uh, how they're going to do it. So with the Chargers, man, like this was a team where you saw the tight ends as a whole, usually putting up some decent numbers. I mean, last year they collectively scored the ninth most fantasy points in the league, but because they were always splitting reps, Cook, Parham, and Steven Anderson, you know, Cook was the best one at tight end 20. So if... We somehow lose these tight ends, and Mike Williams maybe doesn't come back. There is a chance, Dwayne, for a certain someone to emerge as a number two, maybe number three behind Eckler and Keenan Allen. Pass game option for Justin Herbert. A lot of assumptions going on here, but are there any tight ends in well, particular? I, thought, I that... thought you already nailed down that that's going to be Josh Palmer, and that's just our stance. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> what, we're, we're putting our foot down now. We're not changing it Flag regardless plant. of what happens. Flag plant right now. So uh, yeah, like in, aside in from aside from Gronk, because I hear you, you know he is in your he's yeah. Well let's, let's, in your we can set one. we yeah. can set Gronk aside. And, and here's the thing: so the way I tiered, you know, the guys in 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 the um, research that I put together, really was just you know which guys could probably go be a second secondary target, like maybe not the primary read, but the secondary target, pretty much on any offense. And and the answer came down to Gronk when you look at the data. But then like. The next level was they might be a secondary target, but they could also be a really good third target, right? And so I think that's where Zach Ertz comes in. I think Dalton Schultz, uh, Mike Gusecki, and they're all different players. Schultz is more like Ertz, you know, really going to win more underneath, going to run a lot of the hitch routes, not going to run a ton of seam stuff. He may run it, not going to get targeted a ton. But then if you really want more of a field stretcher, like, and I think this also depends on what else they do on the outside end. We talked about this team, um, the Chargers, whenever we talked about receivers as well and, you know, talked about like who could give them, you know, that vertical element. Well, another way to think about that would be looking at tight end. So, I mean, if you got Keenan Allen really working inside the hashes, you don't maybe necessarily, you know, and it's underneath where a lot of Allen's targets come, you know, they're typically, you know, his a dots usually around a 10 or somewhere right under that. And so looking at a tight end, you could think about using a tight end that could get a little more vertical. And I think that was probably their idea with Jared Cook. And if you think about um, Joe Lombardi's the offensive coordinator, he's always used more of a vertical tight end. If there's been a tight end that's been active in that Saints offense when Lombardi was there, now we know Sean Payton was play calling a lot, but it's a lot of the offense really comes, you know, from the Saints, especially the passing game. Even Jared Cook said that last offseason. He was like, yeah, like most of the passing game is coming from the Saints. The run game is really coming more from like the, the Kyle Shanahan style. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that comment, you know, Gasecki, you know, might be a good fit as far as really trying to stretch the field a little more vertically than these other guys. He's not a good run blocker, though. But this is not a team that's really wanting to run the ball, right? It's one of the most ha pass-happy teams, no matter what the game script tells them to do. They're going to be over the league average as far as dropping back to pass. So Gasecki would be one that I think could be interesting because you could pair him in a different way um, with what you have with Keenan Allen. And then, and then that also opens up what you may want to do on the outside, like as far as what type of weapon you may want there. 
And the thing with Jasicki, as I brought up ad nauseum throughout the entire season, whether people wanted to hear it or not, was just the fact that he really does play more as a, you know, slot receiver. But honestly, that's kind of like Jared Cook, too. I have their kind of snaps by position uh, in their offense last year. I mean, Jared Cook last year, 305 snaps in the slot, 108 out wide. I mean, we're looking, again, well over 60-70% of his snaps there. Mike Jasicki, a little bit more extreme. I mean, the guy couldn't even play 100 snaps at the position that he is being told to be. But I do like that call. What about David Njoku, Dwayne? I saw that. I think he's a similar. I I like him too. I think he's a similar player, honestly, uh, to Gusecki. He can really stretch the seam, you know, and he can give you that speed. Doesn't have the greatest hands, not necessarily the most versatile route runner. You look at these workout metrics though, Dwayne. I've been jerking off these things the last five years. (laughs) I know. Yeah, his, his, uh, he brings a spark, if you, you know, as you would say. (laughs) I see what Uh, you did there. (laughs) Yeah. but yeah, and Evan Ingram too. Like Evan Ingram is also an athlete. I think with David Njoku though, we like the fact that there's still more of an unknown with Njoku. It's like we've never fully seen him unleashed. Like he showed some flashes in his second year, third year ended up in this big rotation. Um, now could we potentially see him land in a pass-heavy offense where those you know athletic traits could really be let loose, if you will? And so yeah, I I, I graded him a little bit below Gasecki just because we haven't seen him do quite as much right as what we've seen um, from Gasecki. But I think he's in the same mold. Um, can definitely be a seam stretcher. Definitely could give you yards after the catch on like the crossing routes. Not not like a great player. Like if you want him to run all these comebacks and slants, um, not slants. These comebacks, you know, and uh, deeper routes, breaking back to the quarterback. But like if you get him on a crosser, get him on a slant, get him on a seam, those sort of things. Where you basically just like say, hey, you know, get the inside leverage we need you to have, and then like just run away from the guy. Like I think that you can get that out of David and Joku, and so you could definitely get some big plays. He has recently been saying in the media how much he wants to re-sign with the Browns, finish his career in Cleveland. Was there not a trade request rumor going on last August before the year started? I, I thought so. I thought so. But All this did. stuff, though, right now is like there's so much of it is just rumor. We have no clue. And it's like what's a player going to – you know, a lot of times like these players don't want to rock the boat anyway. Fair. Like they don't want to come out and say they want to leave their team. Like they, you know, they don't want the fans to like completely turn on him. He's already basically a first-round bust to most people in Cleveland. So – now, you do see every once in a while, you know, these players have a random big game against an opposition, and that opposition then goes out and gets that player coming around. David Njoku against those Chargers back in week five, Dwayne. <laughs> yep. Seven catches, 149 yards, and a tutty, a man can dream. After that, I do have the Giants as a possible contender. Really good offseason coaching moves being made here, Dwayne. I know PFF's own Mike Renner was saying that just based on the whole staff construction, that you could argue the Giants have had the best offseason among anyone. Obviously, we need to see how it plays out over the next three, five years. You know, coaching changes, just like draft classes, always kind of ridiculous to be giving them a grade as soon as they happen. But just with the Giants in particular, having Evan Ingram be a free agent, like, okay, Kyle Rudolph is there, but he's 32. It's a new regime. They can get out of that contract pretty easily if they want to. We saw things that Brian Dable did with Dawson Knox, you know, in Buffalo. Situation where we're seeing, you know, Kadarius Tony's name floated out there. Who knows what Sterling Shepard's health is going to be like by week one. One, I mean, Daniel Jones, Dwayne, whether or not he's a starting quarterback there, we have seen him for stretches, not, you know, for the most of the second half of last year. We've seen some stretches of him putting up some solid fantasy numbers. If we can get a feature tight end with the Giants, man, they're going to have a chance to be a top two option in that passing game. And, you know, at the position, that's all we can ask for sometimes. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like like you mentioned, there's just so much going on right now with the Giants offense. We really don't know like who's going to be back. Supposedly Barkley could be Loki on the block. You already mentioned, you know, Kadarius Tony. So, who knows what they'll do with Sterling Shepard, uh, a, a good player but just can't ever stay on the field. Um, so yeah, I, I you know, who knows who's going to end up landing here, but very interested to your point, you know, you get Brian DeBole coming in. Um, we know that he, you know, he's one of these guys that's really been a chameleon. Like whatever his talent is around him, like he's rotated to that, and he's what a really concept. tried to what a crazy yeah. concept. And when he first came to Buffalo, you know, he was really a run heavy historically, you know, kind of coach. And then he was that way early on in Buffalo. But then as they brought in Cole Beasley, you know, then you go out and you add you know, even before Emmanuel Sanders, you had John Brown. You know, you start trying to give you know Josh Allen some different weapons. You draft. Uh, Dawson Knox, obviously he traded for Stefan Diggs, like those sort of things. We saw, we saw, I remember watching the Bills do all those things and it was the year after Josh Allen had been so terrible. And I'm like thinking like, how's this going to work? Like how's Josh Allen going <laughs> to utilize all these guys? And I was just worried, not just about Josh Allen's accuracy. I was, I was like, you know, how much is, you know, this offense really going to, you know, drop back to throw. And it showed you that really their offseason moves totally gave you like if you read those as the tea leaves and you watch what they did in the draft they totally they told you what their hand was going to be but right then when you get these other you don't know because you get these other teams like denver that'll go out and they get all these weapons and then they're like yeah we're gonna we're gonna run the ball as much as we can you know despite all these so you, every coach is a little bit different you know there's a lot of different nuances there's a lot of different variables but yeah tons of targets you know uh for somebody to jump up and grab you know with the giants like we'll have to see who's there Similar kind of situations going on with the final two teams. Seahawks, where it's just like, yeah, I get it. Metcalf and Lockett are going to get theirs. God forbid some of those Metcalf trade rumors come true, though. Then we got to look at both Gerald Everett and Will Disley being unrestricted free agents at the moment. I maintain, man, it didn't work out last year, obviously, because Deshaun Watson couldn't play football. But if we could give Watson or Russell Wilson just one every down tight end that's even somewhat good across the course of an entire 17-game season, I think they scored 10 touchdowns every single year. Basically, the last time we saw that for Russ was when Jimmy Graham's corpse back in like 2016 managed to flirt with that number himself. So just remember, you know, Russell Wilson, yeah, last year, 25 passing touchdowns wasn't quite the same, uh, you know, beast as we've seen in recent years. That was the first time since 2016 he failed to throw for at least 31 scores. So don't be afraid to go back to well with Russell Wilson, man. Do you see any of him at those uh, Pro Bowl skill competitions, Dwayne? Like, those things are actually reasonable enough That's the to best watch. part yeah. of the Pro Bowl is actually that stuff and yeah so I didn't get to see Russ Wilson but I, I was keeping an eye on mostly like the Cowboys stuff um, but no I didn't get to see Wilson but like as far as the Seahawks go like I, I would like to see I think for them because of the way they like to run their offense like OJ Howard is the name that's the most intriguing to me just Ooh. because he's he's a He's good in the run game as far as blocking, so he can be a true every down tight end. You know, Everett did get to that point where he was out there for most of the routes at the end of the season, but he's never really been known, right, for, you know, being that pass blocker. You know, so a lot of times you would still see Will Disley rotating in, but Howard would be that true two-way threat that was a good blocker in college. We saw him be a good blocker early in his career in the NFL. And then, like, if he could get to a situation where, like, they trust him enough, like, he could be a really good fit, you know, for the Seahawks. And sorry, O.J. Howard, I hate to send anybody to, you know, like the 40-play per game <laughs> offense, but, like, it may have your name on it. O.J. Howard, along with C.J. Uzoma, man, one-year Achilles recoveries just like our guy Cam Akers. Love to see these guys overcoming. Well, and with Howard, he can – yeah. yeah, with Howard, he can also give you, like, that, that vertical – 
you know, field stretcher as well. I know it didn't happen last year, but like up until last year, like the ADOTs, 12.3, 11.6, 10.1, uh, you know, 12.7. So, I mean, um, yards per reception, 16.6, 16.6, 13.5, 13.3. Like, you know, so Howard, you know, until this past season and he was hardly used, like there was a reason he was the number 19 pick you know, overall in 2017, I believe that's when it was. But I think we've got all these guys from that year, actually. <laughs> so Going into um, last year, man, it was like Gronk and O.J. Howard, I think were number one and number two in yards per target among, like, qualified tight ends since 2017. It's unfortunate he had the injury, and then it's unfortunate he had to play behind Tom Brady and his freaking BFF. But, yeah, Howard changed the scenery. Absolutely love it. Still just 27 years young. And, hey, man, maybe it is back in Tampa Bay because they are my final team on this list because of losing potentially Chris Goblin, Rob Gronkowski, Leonard Fournette. That's three different players with more than 80 targets and potentially OJ Howard out of the picture. The Cameron Brake contract has been pretty hilarious over the years. I mean, they've been able to get out of it for a long, long time, but he has stayed around because he signed like a $40 million contract and you're like, oh, it's Cam Brake. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and the way they've structured it is like, yeah, look, he's got base salary like an excess of $6 million over the next two years. They can save almost Almost all of it, if they want to just cut them after June 1st and, you know, only getting 500K in dead money, we'll see if they decide to do that. Because that was the problem for OJ Howard, you know, early on in his career before Gronk. It was them continuously splitting his work with Cam Brate. And that's why, you know, landing spot and usage is so, you know, freaking important here for fantasy purposes, everyone. So with the Buccaneers, Dwayne, I mean, it's going to matter a lot. Again, what do they do with Gronk? What do they do with OJ Howard? And then who's under center with all that said, the whole thing behind Mike Evans is wide open for someone to come in and take that number two pass game option. Yeah, for sure. And this is one of the teams, like this team and then the Giants, like we really have no clue like what it's yeah. going to look like as far as all the skill positions, you know, with Chris Godwin potentially being gone, Mike Evans getting older. Like I know we talked a lot about Evans in the slot last week, but Cameron Brait, like if all of a sudden you have O.J. Howard and Gronk gone, I mean, even he could be something, right? That could be like a punt play tied in at the end of a draft. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up our tight end conversation. Before we get going, I want to give a quick shout out to some of our sponsors, especially those at DraftKings. Uh, so we changed the ad up a little bit, but thank you to everyone that pointed out that, no, Ian, it's actually not 1-800-HOPANY. It's Hope and Y. So I'm going to take the uh, massive L with that. Hope and Y for a New York, uh, you know, Phone number makes sense. Not hopping, which is a word that doesn't exist. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll work on that in the future. And again, thanks for those uh, reaching out. But anyway, everyone, now the moment I, I prefer hopping, but well. You know, now everyone's going to remember it. So maybe maybe you're welcome. I'm not apologizing. What am I doing here? The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports bank partner of the Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. Download DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use promo code PFF and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Again, bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code PFF at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. Just make sure you're 21 years old or see jockneys.com slash sportbook for full list of requirements and stay specific responsible gaming resources. And if you have a gambling problem, call 
Gambler. Also want to thank our friends over at Western Southern Financial Group. Are you focused on your roster moves? Western Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, plan to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Western Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. Dwayne, you've been doing some very cool work over the past week, two weeks, I don't know, man. You're pulling Excels at 6 a.m. You're texting me at 1 a.m., you know, talking about Justin Jefferson route highlights. It's fantastic. I love working with you. And now we have some cool-ass charts to go over. Let's start things off with some of your takeaways on NFL route usage because I think as you put it in your tweet, Dwayne, kind of makes sense that if we want to sit here and pretend to be able to evaluate wide receivers, we should probably know what routes are actually what routes they're actually being asked to run at the NFL level. Yeah, I was just, you know, as I was sitting there just really watching, you know, players, keeping all my notes, you know, going through our data, um, you know, I just started, you know, thinking, okay, great. So we see a certain player that every time he's on a comeback route, you know, he wins, you know, well, how, how often do we even, how often does a comeback route even get used? Like, so how, like, how do you weight that information? Right. That may be really great if they can also run, you know, all these other routes that are really important. And it's like just icing on the cake. But how important is it that you can win on a comeback route whenever you look at this? You know, so just to kind of lay the give the lay of the land on what you're showing here on your screen and you're sharing, you know, this is the NFL over the last three seasons. This will start with the top chart. Um, just looking at, okay, and this is the percentage of targets going to which routes, right? And so if you look at it, obviously there's all at the top. And then to the, to the far right, you got three columns, percentage of targets, percentage of yards, percentage of touchdowns. Another interesting column is the one just before that, which is explosive plays per target. So those are um, receptions that go for 15 plus yards or more. And then the others, you know, you guys can see if you've used PFF, you know what probably most of those mean. A couple of them just uh, CBLC is catchable catch percentage, meaning the ball was actually catchable. Did the receiver catch it? Okay. And then you have drop, right? Is if it was catchable, but the receiver dropped it. I know those don't add up to 100%, but there are still instances where it's a catchable pass. The defender gets there at the last second, completely swipes the ball away. So that's not just a contested pass. That's a true batted down pass. So some people, I know if you're like me, you're trying to add these up in your head as you're looking at them. You're like, there's something wrong with this data. Those two things should have to 100%. They're not working. But also the contested catch. Uh, percentage, not as important, but the, the CTT, that's important. Contested uh, target you know, percentage. So the percentage of the time when you throw that ball, it ends up being contested. And there's a lot of things on here that just make sense. But the main thing I wanted to look at um, is just really, okay, how often does the NFL throw to each one of these routes? And there is a clear leader in the clubhouse, and it's the hitch route. So typically the hitch route, you know, is going to be somewhere between six, eight, nine yards. We're not talking about, you know, a deeper version of that, which would be, you know, the curl route. The comeback route is similar, but it's an out, it's, it's breaking to the sideline rather than inside back facing to the quarterback. But the hitch route is 17% of the targets in the NFL. So that by far um, is the number one. Um, targeted route. And then next you have the out route, typically comes from outside the hashes, so 13%. You get a crossing route, or some people call it an over route. Um, it's it's not, it's it's sometimes that can be a drag, but typically it's a deeper route. Like if you look at the A dot on this one, it's a, it's a, 
it's an 11. And so it's really like, you know, if you guys all have played, you played Madden or, you know, Ian, I forgot, what is it, 2014 NCAA or 2000, whatever the last season of it was. Um, but, you know, it's, it's where you're getting in behind the linebackers, but you're, you're usually in front of the safeties, right? Or one of the safeties is dropping down in cover three to, to go with you. And so that's the next. Yeah, um, we, I mean, we usually seeing Cooper Cup make like three of those catches. Oh, yeah. That's a huge, it's huge in the Rams playbook, period. Like it, the, the cross or the over route is really big in the Rams playbook. That's a great call out. Then you have the slant route. Everybody knows what a slant. That's 9%. Then you get down to the go route. Um, the go route is just a streak, right? Hey, go long. I'll hit you deep. <laughs> you know, that's eight the go spikes, route. Eight odd spikes to 30, man. Everything we've talked about so far, 11 yards or lower. Yeah, so that one's 7%. And then you get to the end, some people call the end the dig route, right? It's really an, an end, it's like a squared end route, you know, that's breaking a little bit further down the field, about the same depth typically as the comeback route. Um, so uh, the way a lot of coaches coach it, like you start your break at the uh, for the comeback at the 14, right, and you're catching the ball at the 12. You know, the, di- the dig route's similar, but you're starting at the 12 and the quarterback's putting it on you at the 12-yard line. So those are really, those are the, the most, targeted routes in the NFL. So if you just take those that we gave, now there's a bunch that, you know, and so let's go to the comeback. We just talked about it. Well, how often is a comeback used? 1.2% of the time. Back shoulder go route, 1.7. It it looks great when you're watching it. Like I'm sending Ian clips of these guys, like with these catches, and I'm just sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, well, how often does that even matter? (laughs) And also when you look at some of these, if you look at like the back shoulder go, um, look at the contested throw rate, 45%. Well, what does that do? That makes the catch rate bounce all over on a year-over-year standpoint. When you sent me this, I know the goal, everything, was to look at the most, you know, used charts and stuff. But the first thing that I think I replied to you with was like, look, this is anyone that hates the end zone fade, the goal line fade. Like, this is the only chart you <laughs> ever need your... to show about why. Because, I mean, you look at it, and obviously the yards, like, you're catching the ball in the end zone. So there's no yak or yards per reception or anything. But you look at it, it's got the lowest rate of actually catchable balls that end up being caught. It's got the highest rate of targets that actually end up being contested. And then we have another, again, I believe the single lowest rate, other than jet sweeps, which obviously don't even apply, of the actual t- uh, contested targets being caught. So everything's harder. They're not coming down with these balls as often. Why the hell do people still run the end zone fade? At least it's now only occurring on 0.5% of the targets. But unless you got prime Des Bryant or Calvin Johnson out there, man, stop it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, the wide receiver screen is really, you know, and look, we get it. Like, I know once you get down to the end zone, the field's condensed and all those things. But to your point, like, if you needed a chart just to tell you, like, the end zone fade does not work, it's also got the second lowest PFF receiving grade on this chart at a 61.8. And this is just to receivers. I remove tight ends and running backs. We'll look at them later. I just really wanted to isolate to the receivers. Um, but the, the key takeaway for me, you know, Ian, is if you look at just um, all of the routes that are basically at 7% or above, so that start that stops at the wide receiver screen, right? That 6.8, we'll just call that a 7%. Um, if you put those routes together, that's 72% of the targets are really going to the hitch, the out, the crossing route, the slant the go route, the in or the dig, and then the wide receiver screen. Like So really most of the targets are going there. And so as I was thinking through that, I was like, okay, so knowing this data, what if we were to layer that against like these college prospects that are coming out? And let's just take a look, like how do they perform? 
at the routes that we know the NFL is going to ask them to really be able to come in and be able to run the most. Now, each one of them is going to be a little different, right? Scheme matters. Um, some coaches are better at really, you know, putting their, you know, uh, guys in the right fit, you know, letting them do the things they're really good at. But it's kind of like there's no getting around it. You're going to probably have to do all of these. And so just looking and so kind of a little bit of context for this, this, this chart is really just giving you a heat map of the grades by receiver for each of these routes. Okay, so this is the PFF grade over their college career. This is just not 2021. So I went four years back. If any of these got none of these guys are five-year guys, so we're fine. All of these are four-year guys. And so this is their grade cumulatively across those uh, across those routes. The other thing that I would say is I'm only looking at the FBS because I haven't had a chance yet to go in and look um, at a high level FBS versus the FCS to just see like, is there any kind of difference in the data? Is there anything that we just need to be looking at to really make sure that, okay, are we really comparing apples to apples? My gut says that it's probably gonna be okay, um, but I may just create two charts, right? Okay, here it is against FBS competition, which we could do for FCS schools, like when they play FBS teams. Right, and then you've got your true FBS schools. So, um, looking at this at this chart now, so it's sorted by the right, which is the cumulative. Like so, the the, the receiver, the receiving grade. This isn't their overall PFF grade, right? Which includes their run blocking and all these other things. This is just their grade receiving. Um, cumulatively across the hitch, the out, across the slant, the in and the go. And so I just sorted it that way. So you get David Bell, who like, he, he not only grades out as the top at a 92.9, but if you look at him, he really pops in across all of the key things. So if you look at him on the out routes, he's gonna rank fourth. If you look at him on the crossing routes, he ranks second. If you look at him on the slant route, he ranks third. You get him on the in route, I think he, he ranks, uh, I didn't, Put this one right he's fourth and if you look at the go route he is second on on the chart so not only is he showing up like cumulatively really strongly when you look at that data to the right you know if he ran a lot more of any one of these routes right it's going to wait into that so i still wanted to show each one of these individually just to kind of show like who's probably the most you know ready so a couple of things like and Ian, just jump in here. I know we're kind of running through this live, but like a couple things popped out to me. Um, you know, one of your guys, Ohio State, like if you look at Chris Olave, like the hitch and the out are two of the hugest routes in the NFL. Like he like popped off immediately in both of those. He's number one over the last four years against all of these guys in the hitch route, 89.6 PFF grade. Then the out route is an 82.9, also first. But then like you work in the slant, which is kind of weird. Like the slant is only a 63.3, but it's over four years, right? His, his dig route is not bad. Like his dig route is fine. Um, but if you look at his crosser, it's a little bit below the rest of these guys. It's not a bad grade, but it's not a great grade. And then if you look at his go route, he definitely comes in as one of the lower ranked guys. And what's interesting, he's the guy Ohio State used really more as their deep guy. Like of all the guys on the team, he had the deepest A dot. Yeah, um, I was wondering with so, like, you know, for, for example, his slant, like do, do each of these guys need like a 50 route minimum to kind of be qualifying for this? Because I know... More so in recent years under Ryan Day, these Ohio State receivers have had more complete route trees, but that's why, like, more so kind of under Urban Meyer, like Michael Thomas coming out, 
those guys and like Devin Smith, those on those Ohio State teams, like they usually had a guy, okay, this is our field stretcher, you're running deep, Michael Thomas, you're running nothing but curls and slants. And there was a period where it seemed like Ohio State receivers were almost like being unfairly pigeonholed as one trick ponies. Terry McLaurin is another example. And then they come out and it's like, oh, okay, this X five star yeah, do it all athlete, they can actually do everything there. So yeah, just kind of talk a little bit about like what did you notice any of these receivers like were super one dimensional in what they were doing, or was it more so like no this was a decent sample size for him yeah no actually i need to go back so i was kind of trying to finish some of this up like i'm working on an article on this today and and again like pulling all this data together because the way we have to pull it the way we pull grades versus actual production and all these things there's a lot of layers like you have to go through to like get all the data where you need it so i didn't get to fully sort for this and, and, and we can come back and give folks an update if we need to next week but like just immediately Going over here and looking at Alave right now, like in his his targets versus slant routes, uh, he had one in 2018. He had one in 2019. He had two in 2020. He had four uh, in 2021, which is really, those are really low. So I'll have to go back and like, to your point, like exclude uh, the data points for some of these that don't, I'll have to average these out and see like, what can I potentially use as the threshold? The real way would be like to run that and then see does how well does it correlate right back to fantasy performance, all that stuff. But this is more of kind of a quick and dirty first pass, you know, at it. So with Alave, like it's probably not anything, you know, honestly, you know, to worry about looking at that overall grade for him, you know, because it, it would just be something that ultimately we would kick out. But overall, like when you just look at the all together, a 91.3, like he's still in, you know, the top five. But the guy that, you know, popped off obviously the most was really David Bell. And then look at Traylon Burks. Like if you look at him on hitches, outs, cross routes. And, I, and I've watched, I haven't watched Bell um, much on film, very little. Um, Traylon Burks, I've watched a lot. I've watched, I've watched every target he's had. I've watched every press snap that he's had, which he doesn't get any because they line him up in the line, they line him up in the backfield. They Nothing line wrong him with up. that. No, they line him up um, at slot. They stack him a lot. They do a lot of really, you know, interesting things to help keep him out of these press coverage looks. I want to say, like off the top of my head, like over the last three seasons, he only had like twenty looks, twenty-five looks, something like that against press Jeez. coverage. Um, so they really keep him out of that. But when you look at it, like the concerning things, right? If you look at the hitch, the out, and the cross, he has not done well in those areas. That's forty-two percent you know, of the targets in the NFL go to those routes. So that's definitely, you know, an eyebrow raiser. But if you look at the areas that he, that he does well, it makes sense to you, right? A slant route. It's a simple route. Get the ball in the guy's hands, let him run after the catch. It's an 89.5. It's the second best, you know, on the grid. If you look at him on a dig route or an in route, a 76.2, which is good. And then if you look at him on a go, like, yeah, his sample size, against true single or man coverage is small, but when you put him outside and you let him go, like if you look at his size, you look at his speed, you know, 93.6 actually is the number one in the class. And we, and I saw him multiple times actually stack the opposing defender, get over the top of him, get past him. Doesn't always get an accurate pass from his quarterback. So that's also a factor. And so when you look at these grades, remember this is really on their targets. So where the extra film work comes in is going in and watching all of the other plays where he ran a go, but he wasn't targeted, right? And what was he able to do on those plays when the quarterback lets the ball go? Like, 
you know, what position is he in against the opposing defender? We got to um, figure out if, who is like this class is Jalen Rager. Cause I remember that was always the qualifying statement talking about any of his numbers. And I know it hasn't exactly gone well for Jalen in the NFL, but you saw his numbers and they were so much worse compared to a lot of people. And it was like, Oh yeah, he was the single most unlucky receiver in the country based on catchable target rate. Yes. And that's always a huge part. And that's where really, you know, grading them on the route running, you know, and the ability to separate. And that's the other layer, like we can pull into this, like, you know, how often, you know, when they ran a go or whenever they ran a slant, whatever, were they able to create, you know, at least a step of separation versus less than a step, right? Which would be tight coverage. You know, we have other buckets that you can put it in, which is wide open, which is, you know, two or more steps. Um, versus the opposing DB. But this was really the first pass. It was really just to pull together, you know, these grades. So, so like I said, Bell, Burks, they showed up to me. And then, like, looking at Garrett Wilson, like, we know he was used on the slant routes. And he was the number one guy, 91.3 grade versus slant routes. And, you know, a lot of that goes along with what you see when you look at Garrett Wilson's underlying numbers, right? When you look at his yards after the catch. And even going back to the chart we were showing um, before, Ian, um, you know, with the NFL, like, and where those routes go. Like, if you can pull it up, like, a couple of other interesting notes, like, to think about. Um, one, like, drop rates are, are really consistent, like, for certain routes. Like, slants. Um, it's if you look at the NFL over the last three seasons, it's 10%, 11%, and 10% in the drop route for slants. So a lot of times we talk about you know drops being not sticky and they bounce all over year to year. Well, a lot of that comes from receivers that get a lot of their targets downfield. So if you start looking at post routes, corner routes, go routes, like the drop rate is a lot more inconsistent. The contested um, target rate is always high though. And so that shows, like, the more you deal with the contested targets, right, there's a little bit more of a variable, a little bit more luck comes into play as to what your catch rate is going to be, whereas on a slant, it's pretty consistent. So that's a route that we could actually use to help compare receivers to one another of, okay, like, how good is this guy's hands? And, of course, with a slant route, a lot of times you're letting that get into your body because you're expecting, like, the big hit, <laughs> the linebacker. The, the Ian Harditz is about to blow you up as you, um, you know, as you look for the ball and he just puts one in your ear hole. Um but as far as like these other guys, like Drake London, I know is a guy, you know, Ian, and, and you can jump in here too. I know you've watched some of his film. He's a guy that I know a lot of people really like. And, you know, actually I was chatting with Matt Waldman this past weekend. You know, Matt is an awesome film guru um, over yeah. uh, mattwaldmanrsp.com. Like if you guys haven't checked out his stuff, like I couldn't recommend Kingship. somebody Kingship. more. Yeah. And the process he puts behind watching these guys you know, and, and Drake London is a guy that like was not showing up very well for me, you know, in these metrics and, and Matt likes him. But as I went back and looked at it, um, the thing I noticed the most was number one, like he really struggled to get over the top of the defender, you know, deep, like he could get even to the defender and he could, he could run the comeback route really well. Um, any kind of route breaking back to the quarterback was really good um, for Drake London. And look, it shows up to be one of his better routes. His, actually, it's his best graded route over the last four seasons. It's 84.6, and he's a junior, so that would be over three seasons, 84.6. Um, but if you look at these other routes where I was just worried about, okay, in the screen game, a lot of these slants, underneath things where – like running after the catch, like he's okay, but he's not great. And so you wonder, like, does he still continue to get those kind of targets on an NFL team that may have a better athlete that they want to use for their space plays? You know, um, not to use like an overused name, but like Debo Samuel's a space player. Traylon Burks to start his career is probably going to be a, a, a space player. Not to say he can't give you something in the deep game, but when you look at London, like in all of these areas that, you know, the NFL really wants someone to do well um, right out of the gate, like, 
he wasn't great on hitches. He wasn't great on out routes. Wasn't great on crossing routes. Not good on slant routes. Not good on in and dig routes. Like his grades are bad on all of these. Now, again, going back and watching all the routes, we may see some different things, right? He may have been open a lot more than that, and his quarterback didn't throw to him. So this is the initial pass. Um, and then Mechie was another one that, that popped up as being like, wow, like this guy, I'm kind of surprised. Like, yeah, Jane, should, I mean, should, should, he be, thing, should he be coming out? <laughs> Mechie you know? and to see Mechie and Jamison down there on the bottom, I mean, both of the Bama guys, I mean, I know we had been told that, and I think we kind of saw it come to fruition where Jamison Williams couldn't quite crack Ohio State's big three, which is probably going to be three first-round picks when it's all said and done. Shout out to Jackson Smith and the Jigba um, moving forward as well. But then for him to go to Bama and just take over the way he did like man you put on Jamison's film and he is fast fast man like puts his foot in the ground he is gone like they use him as a gunner on special teams and it was just like you know one basically like one go route after another out there and no one could hang with this guy we saw what he did to Georgia uh, in the SEC championship but do you see this and start to wonder like okay how much of the Bama passing game was Mechie and Williams how much of it was also the scheme and also Heisman quarterback play under center yeah, so with with Williams and with Mechie, you know, I mean, really Williams is the key one, right? I did go back and just isolate to this year just because his playing time had been so small, right, before yeah. this. And so whenever you look at Jamison and you just compare him to 2021 against the same group that we're looking at on the screen, like his hitches would come out to be ranked fifth overall. His out routes would be seventh, cross, crossing routes fifth, slant routes fourth, in routes or digs fifth. So he actually he moved up and you know if you look at him just in 2021 which is really where most of his playing time came from that's the other thing that i haven't factored in here like you know there's probably we probably need some sort of way like to really give more weight to the most recent grades right against against these coverages because especially for guys that you've seen improve like where really they've they've shown drastic improvement um drake london would actually fit that category as well like his first two years he mostly just played slot so he was a big slot receiver and then this last year they moved him outside and you saw drastic improvement so like if you look at drake london just for his 2021 season he would rank fourth in the hitch routes fourth in the out routes i you know with him i kind of leaned to the bigger data set because he actually has he did have more playing time in the two previous seasons but with jameson i think you gotta you know you really gotta take a look at his you know his most recent season has to be weighted more um, because it was the first time he really got to play. And even with George Pickens, like, there's just not a ton of data, of data yeah. you know, on George Pickens. Um, Justin Ross was interesting, right? He still came out in the middle here because he's a guy that was huge as a freshman. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you're looking at dominator, raking, uh, breakout age, things like that, like, you're, breakout age, like, dude, he was a freshman and was just torching like, you know, some of the best, you know, defensive yeah. backs in college National championship, he looked like the best player on the field for stretches. Yeah. So, so there's other layers to this, like that we've got to work through. But this was just really kind of the first pass. Like, let's get a high level look at. You know, I know um, what I like about looking at, you know, the PFF grades, like breaking it down by each one of these. Inherently, the way we grade, right? The further down the field you catch the ball, or if you're catching it past the marker, you get, you know, you get a higher grade. So it's kind of hard, like, to just say you don't want to knock a guy too much for just running slant routes. We know the NFL loves slant routes and a slant route's not going to grade as highly as a comeback route, you know, or as a go route because it's not going to be as far down the field. Um, And you really have to do something with the catch after you catch it to really, you know, to get a better grade, like from a PFF standpoint. So like if it's third and eight and you catch a slant route at, 
you know, say one yard beneath the sticks, right? You're going to get like a plus 0.5 on that, you know? And then if you get past the sticks with your run after catch, you're going to get like another plus 0.5. Um, so I like looking at it this way because it also kind of normalizes. It allows you to look at all these guys against one another. And again, it's not perfect because this is on targets and like some guys get more targets on these routes than others. You can check out all that and more over at pff.com. Dwayne's got some articles up in future weeks, but PFF Draft Guide, big board, plenty of that goodness. And I know at, on your Twitter, Dwayne, at Dwayne McFarlane, he tweeted out at least some of the route takeaways. Always a good follow. Apologies to the uh, YouTube audience. My computer went zero dark 30 on me about 10 minutes ago, and I've just been staring at a black screen. But you know what, Dwayne? I can still hear you. You can still hear me. We will continue on, and we'll do it live. Why the hell not? So last segment I want to go through, everyone, is just a quick, you know, Super Bowl preview between the two quarterbacks. As we know, this can, you know, really just go towards deciding basically any matchup, regardless of how big of the game it is. So why not go 12 rounds, title, fight, see who comes out on top. I looked at 12 different categories. Just to try to get a good idea between Burrow and Stafford. Which one really comes out on top when we look at who is the most overall complete quarterback? So first things first, in round one, I want to look at who is best in stable situations. Now, PFF basically tries to look at certain metrics that year to year, we see far less volatility. And they are, I think, just, again, like the name says, more stable situations for evaluating quarterback play. So if you look at these two quarterbacks, the five metrics we use were PFF passing grade from a clean pocket, standard, easy, straight dropbacks in the pocket, passes on first and second down, no play action, and throws at or beyond the sticks. And Dwayne, pretty common theme here. Both these quarterbacks, they're in the freaking Super Bowl. They're fantastic. Matthew Stafford, you see him turning top 10 ranks and everything. But then you get to Joe Burrow. First in clean pocket PFF passing grade. First in standard dropbacks. First on first and second down. First on no play action. Second when throwing at or beyond the sticks. I mean, if you just look at what Burrow's been able to do, when we can take away the single kind of you know biggest kryptonite from his offense being his offensive line, no one's been able to slow the guy down all season long. Yeah, for sure. Like, and like, just looking at this data, it's like, because I haven't looked at it this way. Um, I mean, his number one ranks across all these areas. It's like, it is ridiculous. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, was it OBJ that, that you know, put out the quote? That, like, <laughs> if you looked up the word cool, like Joe Burrow is just going to be sitting there. I know that's a that's a, a, a another former LSU guy. But like, man, looking at this, like, it makes you definitely think that. Now, looking at throwing deep. And once again, both guys are absolutely fantastic. This time, though, it does seem like Stafford should get the edge. Raw yards per attempt, Matthew Stafford. League high, 18.9 on the season. Burrow all the way down in six at 15.3. We also see a decent gap between the adjusted completion rate, too. So, again, both quarterbacks very good. But Matthew Stafford does get the edge here. And credit to him for staying hot in the playoffs. On pass, is thrown at least 20 yards downfield. He's completed 7 of 14 for two. 255 yards and a pair of touchdowns. Luckily, zero interceptions. I know 49ers fans uh, wish that would have been one at this point. Meanwhile, Joe Burrow, at least in the playoffs, Dwayne, just three for nine for 101 yards, zero touchdowns, and interception when throwing the ball at least 20 yards downfield. Burrow's been, look, He's been great all season long. I just said that um, as well. But if you look at kind of what he did at the end of the regular season, he had the two just massive blow-up games against um, what the... 
Ra yeah, the Ravens and then the Chiefs, like towards the end of the year, it's like, wow, we're hot, we're ready to go. Has that been skewing people's mind a little bit on Burrow? Because let's face it, it's not like he's coming to the playoffs and just week after week after week been putting up these huge gaudy numbers. Yeah, but at the same time, I think, you know, we could also argue that, like, you know, he was coming off of a major injury. Um, the offense began evolving, you know, probably around week 14, really, to, yeah. to starting to throw the ball more. So it's almost like the coaches are seeing the same thing, right? They're getting more and more confident, you know, in his capability, uh, more confident, you know, in his timing with his receivers. Um, the other thing, you know, is just as you play against a lot of the – he's recently played against more of these man coverage teams, and he's just fared really well against them. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, it's obviously he's a component of it, but he just has three really good. I mean, I guess even Uzoma now is playing so well, yeah. too. But like if you think about Tyler Boyd, you know, Jamar Chase and then T Higgins, like who really has a better three than that? And if you're going to give them singles across the board, it's going to be kind of hard for a quarterback that is good as Burrow is to not find, you know, the right guy because one of them is going to be open. You're going to get a mismatch. And so I think, you know, those are all factors that are coming together. So I don't think it's I don't think it's something that, you know, is just being blown out of proportion. I think that you saw Burrow evolving and the coaches evolving with him as the season went on. And it's funny because Burrow last year statistically was one of the worst deep ball throwers. And, you know, you change A.J. Green with Jamar Chase and you see how that kind of has a little bit of an effect on the rest of the offense. Round three, we want to look at who is better when their receivers are already open. It goes to Joe Burrow in a bit of a landslide. League best PFF passing grade of 95.5 when targeting receivers deemed open or wide open. Stafford top eight himself, but we really see the difference in adjusted completion rate where Joey Burrow... Number three, Matthew Stafford, all the way down to 16th overall in the league. And even throwing downfield, man, it just really uh, accentuates the results. Joe Burrow, when throwing the open receivers at least 10 yards downfield, 54 of 63 for 1,395 yards, 22.1 yards per attempt, 13 scores, not a single interception on the year. Tough to stop Joe Burrow, really under any circumstances, particularly when one of his receivers is able to get open. And Dwayne, this is where we kind of see Burrow going on a lower run here. I thought, you know, starting this study, you know, not really, I thought Burrow would probably win, but kind of start, once I got through four or five rounds, I was like, my God, is this going to be 11 to 1 or something? Because we look at who is better at extending the play. Doesn't, you know, take a rocket scientist to figure out that one is Joey Burrow. Numbers on scramble rates tell us the same thing. And also as a rusher, who's better against two high looks? It's also Joe Burrow. One high looks, Joe Burrow. Well, against different types of coverages, it's all coming up Joe Burrow, Dwayne. Against cover one, we've seen Stafford have the advantage. But cover three, cover two, cover four, cover six, it's just all Burrow. Really, man, the one big edge, we talked about Stafford getting the deep ball to his name, but Burrow obviously pretty good in his own right. The one edge, I think, comes down to how they deal with pressure and sacks because that has been the problem with Burrow this year. We are able to kind of track certain things like how often our pressures actually converted to sacks, and that's the problem, man, with Burrow this season. The only quarterbacks that have actually allowed a higher rate of pressures to be converted into sacks, Zach Wilson and Baker Mayfield. Not exactly a great company that you want to be in. Matthew Stafford, far more respectable, you know, 19th uh, in that metric. So this is why with a lot of these, 
opportunities, Dwayne. Like, I would look at the passing numbers, you know, under pressure against the Blitz and things like that. And Burrow was the better thrower, but sacks are a big part of this, man. And I think there's something that, even though they aren't incorporated heavily into fantasy football, maybe they should be in the future because, I mean, losing your yards on a sack, like, how come we just say whatever and we don't even really record that as a play in fantasy? While if Joe threw the ball to the sideline, he lost nine yards. You know, obviously, we would count that against him. So that was why, again, Joe Burrow would be ahead of Stafford in a lot of the passing metrics. But once we look at kind of offensive-wise success, like EPA per play and things of that nature, we actually see the Rams be better. Because Stafford, to his credit, and the offensive line plays a large part in this, obviously, but they were better at avoiding those negative plays and pressures uh, throughout the whole season. So, you know, Stafford also, to his credit, third downs and in the fourth quarter and overtime throughout the year, narrowly edged Burrow. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Stafford, in the fourth quarter or overtime on the year, 13 touchdowns against just a single interception. Burrow, 10 touchdowns against eight picks. And I even looked at situations, you know, where they're tied or trailing or just in the playoffs. Stafford has been the quote-unquote more clutch quarterback. Like, as bad as, as much as we want to bring up, you know, the Stafford dropped interception last week, Burrow had an equally, like, horrendous potential interception dropped himself uh, just a drive after he did throw a fourth-quarter interception. So, you know, Dwayne, when I got down to it, Burrow won seven rounds to five. You know, I believe that's a one... 115, 113, if you want to go with the 10-9 uh, boxing terminology there. But, you know, I think it's a good way to quantify maybe what we already knew, that being both guys are great. But really, man, it's going to come down to if Joe Burrow can keep on overcoming the pressure in the offensive line. Because at a minimum, man, Stafford and McVay, what they've been able to do with this Rams offense is provide a group that even if they aren't quite as elite and exceptional, exceptional as Burrow, it's a more complete overall offense that we've seen accordingly put up points fairly consistently all year long. Yeah, I mean, with Stafford, like, it's, can you do something with Cooper Cup? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, look, and, and Beckham Jr. has been nice, but, I mean, I, I know, you know, you've looked at something similar to this, you know, looking at, you know, uh, Jamar Chase versus Cooper Cup. But, I mean, Joe Burrow, yeah, it's just all about the blitz. Can they handle the blitz? But they just have too many good weapons. Um, you know, he's going to see a ton of zone coverage, you know, this weekend, you know, looking at, you know, the Rams. And the Rams are interesting because they're one of these teams that really mix things up. Like, they're not just like, oh, yeah, we're a single high team, right? We're a cover three team. We're a cover, you know, four team. You know, most teams are either, you know, cover, uh, you know, most most zone is cover three still in the league. But, man, the Rams are one of those teams that they truly mix in all of the different looks. You're going to see cover six one play, cover four the next, cover two the next two. And you, you may not see cover three, you know, for seven, eight plays in a row. So the Rams are very good at mixing things up. They're also really good at trying to disguise. So if you can play all of those coverages really well, and, you know, you know that you're not going to – because the problem with zone coverage and the reason – you know, some coaches don't try to use all of it, Ian, is because, you know, if you give the guys too much, like what happens? You know, what happens whenever, you know, that's where you get the blown coverages, the blown assignments. But the Rams are one of these teams that they can actually execute on all of them. And so you really have to play on your toes whenever you're playing against their secondary. But at the same time, they're bringing that intense pressure. Um, so that that's kind of a tough mixture to have to play against. But again, for Burrow, fortunately, like with three really good weapons, and we, we've seen here in the recent weeks, like Burrow's just getting the ball out a lot quicker, right? He's just, he's just basically, you saw him in that Chiefs game change. Like he's like, okay, I'm just going to get it out. I'm just going to get the ball out, get the ball out, get the ball out. And you can do that when you've got three receivers like he has. 12 rounds. 
Joe Burrow, unanimous decision, W over Matthew Stafford. Thought it might be a TKO. Stafford able to weather the storm, put up a good fight in his own right. You can catch that article on pff.com as always. Dwayne, fantastic stuff. We will be back on Friday with a nice little Super Bowl preview. You, myself, and Andrew Erickson going over some props, general matchups, all fun preview things of that sort. Uh, the Super Bowl, we will be here getting feisty, all things Dynasty content. I'm going to finish off my ranks later this week. I know we've already been diving into plenty of that, and we have plenty more on the way. Also, we'll start to get into a little bit of best ball stuff. I had a few of you reach out and just ask about uh, maybe getting some early thoughts on best ball. Definitely um, will. I think probably on these episodes moving forward, we can definitely devote a segment or two uh, to it. But just so you all know, really trying to hit Dynasty the hardest in February. And then once March comes around and we get some of these free agents figured out, that's when, as a team, we will be diving even more into best ball. So appreciate all you listening. Mr. McFarland. anything else you want to get off your chest? No, man. No, this has been great. Um, I've got to go back to spreadsheet land now. <laughs> <laughs> My man is always grinding. I will get back to maybe finding a new computer so I don't look at a blank screen for like 30 straight minutes. So we will address that, watch the film, and get better. For Dwayne, I'm Ian. Thanks as always for tuning in to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. And until next time, take care, everybody.